Today's episode is brought to you by Content Reuse. It's one of the oldest tricks in the developer's books. Need a higher level enemy model? Recolor an enemy, attach some new stats to it. That's how old JRPGs did it. Super Mario Bros. uses about 120 different 8x8 pixel mini tiles to create every single one of its stages, just with some careful recoloring and repurposing. And even Mega Man is no stranger. Mega Man and Base was built out of pieces of Mega Man 8. So what happens when you reuse a lot of the materials from the Mega Man Battle Network series? You get 2003's Mega Man Battle Chip Challenge on today's episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Carlisle, and this show is the show where I chronicle my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can. Today we're tackling a game that I was, at first, rather dreading. Mega Man Battle Chip Challenge does not have a good reputation. Depending on who you ask, it may arguably be the worst game in the Battle Network series. Kind of the way that, like, X5, X6, X7 was a notable low point for the platformers. To be kind to Battleship Challenge, it is a spin-off made by a different group. Specifically, it was made by Intocreates, who were working on the Mega Man Zero games but were not involved in the production of the Battle Network series. And, oh man, is this a weird one we're going to have a lot to talk about. Battleship Challenge is centered around the Battleship Grand Prix. This tournament is set to have special rules, which will make up the bulk of how this game plays and how the discussion about it comes out, and is not really your typical JRPG. It is not using the same engine that the Battle Network games have up to this point, nor is it doing something like the classic platformers either. There is no overworld to run around in, there's just a series of menus that handle things between battles, which, when I say it out loud, reminds me of the format of a lot of mobile RPGs, actually. Put, like, a pin in that, we'll come back to that thought. Unlike other Battle Network games, we also don't have to play as LAN. When you start up a file in this game, and the game does let you have two files so you can explore around as you want, there are actually six different playable characters. So let's take a moment to actually discuss each of them and a quick summary of their story, because each of them does have a story that got at least some effort put into it. Obviously, you can play as LAN and Mega Man. This story is pretty expected. He enters the tournament on the promise of winning rare chips, gets caught up in a World 3 plot to sabotage the winner of the tournament, takes down the faceless NPC behind it, and gets to duel Chod in the end. It's the most typical and boring story, right down to having his rivalry with Chod take the center stage that you would expect out of a net battling tournament. Like, literally, it bookends it with him dreaming about a finals match with Chod at the start of it, and then that's actually how it ends, and there's not really anything new or exciting. We could also play as Dex and Gutsman in this game. Dex's story is about his own self-confidence, given he's kind of the, you know, the butt of the joke that always gets beaten. He's certain the issue is with himself, Gutsman is certainly issue is with Gutsman, and his little brother Chi Sao is being just absolutely unlikable and saving up money to get Dex a new Navi, which 
oof. Unfortunately, rather than following up on that self-confidence issue, most of this story is a comedy while Chisao runs around just making a nuisance of himself, scouting everybody out. Even Dex kind of has to yell at him in the end when Chisao tries to sabotage the final match with Lan, and Dex is like, hey, do you really think I can't win? I'd rather lose fair and square than win because you didn't have any confidence in me. Like, it has a good ending and a decent beginning, but the entire middle stretch just undersells it, and it doesn't really work, and just reminds you that he kind of is there more for comedy. Also kind of there for comedy is one of the two new characters, a kid named Kai, who is accompanied by the Navi Turbo Man. He's a kid that Lan rescued during just some minor mission. Now he idolizes Lan as a hero and enters the tournament just to get the chance to battle his idol, and ends up accidentally being the one to find the culprit in the world three case and stuff. It's a cute story, but it's not particularly good. But there is three actual stories I do think are kind of decently done, one of which involves the other new character, Mary, a transfer student from Natopia. She's an interesting duo with her Navi ring. Not ring man, just ring, because it's a female Navi, and that's how they indicate it, I guess. Whereas Mary is very introverted and quiet due to the fact that she has health problems, Ring is actually very outgoing and like an older supportive sister who just wants to get Mary out there and like introduce her to people, get friends, maybe even get a boyfriend. To which end, Ring starts trying to set up Mary and Chad to hook up. Naturally, this doesn't work given Chad's clear disinterest, but it is kind of interesting how Mary's growth is basically learning that friendship can take a lot of like it doesn't have have to just be kids running around on a playground. It can be quieter, it can be long distance, and she learns that from learning about Chad and Len's friendship, rivalry, whatever they've got going on. Speaking of Chad, we can also play as him alongside Proto Man. And naturally, his is focused on the Core World 3 events, and, you know, he knows about it from the start and stuff, so we are seeing his perspective. And it is kind of nice to just see him and Proto Man in general, and seeing how Chad is, like, actually kind of enjoys net battling and getting caught up in everything. Due to some extra complications that come up in this story, in the final match, Chad has to beat Lan in the finals in order to save Mega Man from basically a virus trap that's been set. And it is kind of interesting how that's the point at which Chad gets most fired up is when Lan and Mega Man are actually in danger. And speaking of Lan's romantic interest options, the sixth character is Mile and Roll. Miles' story is largely about her feeling disconnected from Lan. Most of the time, he's got other things in his life, and she kind of wants to be his number one. In her version of the story, prior to the tournament beginning, it's raining out, Lan gives her an umbrella and walks home in the rain, and naturally catches a cold and can't compete. And while Mile doesn't expect to perform well in the tournament, and at first she feels like she has to do it just to win the chip for Lan, the fact that she comes to enjoy net battling and gain confidence in herself and gets all these cool stories to tell to Lan actually helps her connect with him more and understand him more in the end. Which is a really cool arc for Mile to have, and a really interesting way to develop their relationship, in a way that is much more meaningful than anything that the main games have done so far. And it's really nice to see her finally get a starring role. Unfortunately, it's only a starring role in her story. She's almost completely non-existent in the other stories. And it really does just kind of remind me of shonen stories like the Battle Network series have a real problem with writing women characters as anything other than, like, accessories to the male characters, especially if they're in a lead heroine role, and the fact that Miles' story is entirely about her crush on Lan, and the fact that Lan's story is never ever about Miles, 
it's about Chod. Um, I'm just saying, I've been through a lot of shonen media in my life, and a lot of people are always like, oh, why do people have more interest in the relationship between these two male rivals? And why pretend it's all this? It's because the writing and the attention and the development of the female characters absolutely sucks in shonen manga. Mile deserves better. Anyway, that's the characters you can play as in their different stories. Let's so let's start talking about, like, the actual gameplay mechanisms of this game. Whichever character you choose, you'll be given a quick tutorial on the mechanics that is shown to us rather than played through, even though you could have played through it, and then you're sort of set loose. What you will not be doing is wandering around an overworld, jacking into things, exploring areas, gathering treasure, etc. This game is controlled entirely through menus. Whether it's setting up your folders in your command deck, more on what that means in a moment, or just going out and visiting shops, or signing up for tournaments, all of it is just selected from the menu. You'll enter a tournament, you'll get thrown into a few battles with, like, a little bit of dialogue in between and before and afterwards. Place high enough in a given tournament, as in make it to the semi-finals at least, before having to quit. Do that at all tournaments in a given rank, and you unlock the next rank up and can continue the story. Actually win the tournaments, and you will get access to new Navi chips and extra Zenny rewards and stuff that you'll take to the shop, etc, etc. This is the basic gameplay loop of the game, but it's not just the removal of the overworld that makes battle chip challenge distinctive. Let's talk about folder building and what the battle system actually plays like. So in the main battle network games, you built a folder out of 30 chips, and then in battle, you would randomly draw a hand of up to five of them, set up a bunch of them to take with you in a real-time battle segment, play that out, and then if you hadn't won within a few seconds, be able to refresh that hand, choose new chips, etc., etc. In Battle Chip Challenge, you will still be building a folder of up to 30 chips. However, you're actually setting up, before each fight, a deck of up to 12 chips in a very specific format. Imagine in your head a pyramid, or like a triangle or something. Pick, pick one end of that to start at. That is your Navi chip. Every character has a default Navi chip. However, you can obtain Navi chips for different characters, and unlike the core series, this literally changes what Navi you are playing as. This determines your Navi's default attack that will be used at the end of each round. It will determine their HP, the maximum capacity of the rest of the program deck, their element. Regardless of who you started as, you can play as something like 50 different navvies by the time you have fully completed your collection in this game. Everyone from literally just generic NPC navvies, who actually are kind of useful because they tend to have the biggest limit on their program deck, to even just like top-end, yeah, Mile can be operating Mega Man, or base once you beat him. This game has a ton of navvies available from Battle Network 1 to 3. Then we start traveling down that pyramid. 
That single Navi chip links to two chips. Those branch out into three chips, and those branch out into four chips. At each of these slots, we are allowed to place other chips from our folder. There's a grand total sum of the size of the chips that you can put in. For instance, early in the game, a Navi with low capacity might have a limit of about 120 to 140 megabytes worth of chips for their nine slots. Later in the game, a Navi like Mega Man or the Generics might have up to 300 megabytes to divide among those nine slots. And it does mean you have to make choices. With some chips going as high in cost as 80 megabytes to put into your deck, do you put in those strong chips and potentially leave entire slots in your deck completely empty? Do you bring a whole bunch of low-cost chips so that you can ensure that all of them are filled? Like, there's decision-making to be had there. This weird branching pyramid essentially represents a decision tree that your Navi will be making in battle, and we'll get to it in a moment how that actually plays out. Essentially, the closer the chips are towards the Navi chip on your tree, the earlier they will be used, and the closer to the center are, the more likely those chips are to be. Finally, the deck also contains an L slot and an R slot. Into these, we can place any chips we choose. Well, not initially any two chips we choose. There's another limit here that says, like, okay, you can only place, like, up to a 20 megabyte chip in this slot. This doesn't count against the cap for the rest of the folder limit, and over the course of the game, as you complete tournaments and rank up, the total sum that you can put in the command deck and the maximum size of chips that you can use in your L and R slot expand drastically. These L and R chips will serve a mildly different function in battle, which we'll get to in a moment. If we want more chips, we will need to either win them by doing well in fights, or you can take your extra zenny that isn't being used to pay tournament fees and go to Higsby's to buy from the chip gotcha. I'm not even joking, 300 zenny for one chip, or 3,000 for 10 chips at a time with a guaranteed rare chip. That, like I said, kind of structured like a mobile game, but there's no real money changing hands here. It's just really funny to me how this was kind of predating the gotcha. But let's say we open up a tournament. We will be matched against a Navi and told, like, this is the Navi we're fighting, this is their star chip, their, like, rarest, most valuable thing, and this is the type of panels you'll be fighting on. Then, we're given an opportunity to edit our deck if we choose, and we go into the fight. You can retry fights as many times as you want. You don't have to get it on the first go. And whenever you retry a fight, you will have the ability to go back in and readjust your command deck. But you can only change chips out for chips that are in your folder, your 30 list. Which means as the game goes on, and you start doing longer and longer tournaments, you do need to make sure that your folder covers a variety of different opportunities so that you're ready to adjust your command deck to suit your opponent. But I've been talking all this about setting up a command deck as like a decision tree and stuff, and what the heck does that even mean? Well, I've been talking around the battle system of this game because it's easily the most controversial part, so let's talk about the battles.
If there is one thing that is going to make or break your enjoyment of Battle Chip Challenge, it's the battle system. Because oftentimes, what you do in battle is you press B to activate the fast forward, and then you wait. Battle Chip Challenge is a turn-based combat system that progresses automatically without really caring about your input. In each given round, the game will pick one chip from your decision tree, then go on to the next line and the next line, and it will do the same for your opponent. Then, the game will automatically play out the fight as though it was turn-based combat, and the actions your Navi had selected for each turn were those different chips, with a faster chip going first out of the two players, basically, in the fight. After all those chips have been exhausted, both Navis will use their default attack, and the game will enter the next round, redrawing a new random selection of chips. You might have noticed that I didn't mention anything about a 3x6 grid, or moving around, or timing your attacks, or anything like that. That's because, yeah, no, it is actually automatic. You can literally press B, and the game will start a fast-forward that will auto-play through each of these actions, and just cycle through the game. And that is actually it at its core. The game goes until either 10 rounds of combat go, in which case the player who deleted the most chips wins, more on that in a moment, or until one of the navvies hits 0 HP, in which case the match is over. There is a little bit more to that. There is some form of interaction. Every time a chip or attack actually processes in the game and goes through, both players have a little custom gauge of their own that reads like 5%, 10%, 15% that slowly ticks up. This is what the L and R slots in your command deck are for. At any time, you can choose to try activating your L or R chip. After the current action's done, it will then basically randomly roll to see if you successfully slot in and intervene in the fight with that extra data. And it is literally the chance that is written. If you try this at 60%, there's about a two-thirds chance that your chip will successfully activate. But if it doesn't, your custom gauge drains back down to zero and you lose that chip. You can't use it again for the rest of the battle. Oh, and I found this out after finishing, because it's never mentioned in the game anywhere and is like arcane knowledge. When the game is displaying the chips that have been selected for a round, hitting L and R when you have at least 50% of your gauge, you can actually re-roll which chips you drew in order to get you out of some bad luck if you happen to draw just like an empty line of chips, and you wouldn't have been doing any attacks while your opponent was wailing on you. But that's actually about it in terms of direct interaction. No, seriously, you set up a command deck that essentially acts as your Navi's strategy for a turn-based game that auto-plays out in front of you, and you watch it go. Now, having said all of that, it's not quite as simple as it first appears of just wailing on each other. Because while you don't take any control of this, and there isn't like movement on a grid to be had or anything, it's just a turn-based back and forth like a really old JRPG, that doesn't mean the strategy of this game is shallow. For starters, like I mentioned, navvies have a lot of variety and are actually balanced against one another. Some have more or less HP, some may have a significant chance to dodge a number of attacks while others just stand there and expect to take them. Some are able to equip more chips in their deck, and of course, a number of navvies are elemental. And while yes, this means you have an elemental weakness to certain chips from your opponents, you also gain certain benefits from terrain, and you get additional damage of about 60% if your attack matches the element of your navi, which can be an extremely powerful effect. 
Plus, after every combat round, each Navi's natural attack is different. Some are distinctly more powerful than others. Rolls just deals 50 damage directly to your opponent, but also heals her for 50 HP in return. Her max HP might be low, but if your opponent isn't doing massive amounts of damage, Roll will be able to shrug off a lot of enemy attacks and actually is probably one of the best Navis in the game as a result, as far as non-elemental Navis go. While a Navi like, say, a Shadow Man, hits three times with his, and will be able to boost his attack extremely high if you combine him with some Navi plus 20 chips. Oh, and speaking of chips themselves, that's where a lot of the strategy comes in, because chips are rarely just deal X damage to your opponent. They have their own list of statistics and interactions, including their own HP. Yeah, some chips might just deal, like, a cannon might deal 60 damage directly to your opponent, but the classic shotgun chip will deal, say, 40 damage to your opponent, but also 40 damage to their last battle chip. And if a battle chip's HP hits zero over the course of the fight, it is considered deleted. It is removed from your command deck for the rest of the battle. Any time that the random decision-making of the game says, hey, we've selected to use this chip, well, now it's just gone, and you will be doing nothing for that action. Though it's worth noting that in this game, your opponents play by these exact same rules, too. You can completely disarm your opponent and reduce them just to that basic Navi attack by destroying all of their chips. This means that chips can compensate for, say, high power by being particularly fragile. Or vice versa, of course. A weaker chip may be more valuable because of the fact it has 200 HP and is super hard to delete. There's also tons and tons of additional interactions when we start getting into utility chips. A number of chips take up what is referred to as the guard slot, which you can think of as like an active status effect. Maybe it's just a barrier shrugging off one attack. A simple one to explain, for instance, is the time bomb. It doesn't do any damage immediately, but it will soak all non-piercing enemy damage for the rest of the round, and if it still has HP, then it will blow up at the end of the round and deal a ton of damage to your opponent and all of their chips. But of course, if your opponent has opted for an offensive strategy, they're probably going to break it before it goes off. And chips like that and curse shields could be just straight up one-shot and demolished if your opponent is running chips like Wrecker or Guts Punch that have the property of straight up breaking guard chips. You can use chips like Area Steals to reduce the opponent's evasion. You can use a chip like Jealousy to destroy your opponent's LNR slot chips so that they cannot slot in and interfere with the fight. Or if you want to use those slots a lot more yourself, you can use the Fast Gauge chip, which constantly adds a huge amount to your custom gauge, adding reliability to your slotted chips. You can use various field effects. You can get all the different types of elemental terrains. You can put holes in the middle of the field that prevent players from using sword chips. A personal favorite that I ended up using a whole lot is a chip called Mindbender. It does almost no damage, but if it hits your opponent directly, they are guaranteed to draw the same line of chips on the next turn as they already had, which works amazingly with strategies that mass damage your opponent's chips in order to erase them. Start adding in things like auras and recovery chips, you can start to see how this seemingly very straightforward auto-battle system actually has a surprising amount of interaction in depth. Especially because the thing is, is weaker chips are not automatically useless in this game. Even in the end game, with a huge megabyte limit on your command deck, you're still gonna have to pick and choose. Trying to fill out your deck with 50-60 megabyte chips isn't going to work, and so low-cost chips can be valuable for that. Sometimes weaker versions of chips 
are stronger because they keep the same basic effect and they might do less damage, but they're more durable. And that may be more important sometimes. Some of the weaker chips in the game, like for instance, Recovery 10 and Recovery 30, that's chump change. But those chips specifically have zero megabyte size. If you can fit them into your folder, you can fit them into any command deck with open slots. But then you have to fit them into your folder. And given that like, you may be later in the game facing 15 battles in a row, you're going to need all the chips to handle those 15 battles in your 30-chip folder. Because you're going to want elemental chips to strike at elemental Navi's weaknesses so they don't just overpower you. And you're going to want chips that break the enemy's guard. And you're going to want fast chips to deal with destroying enemy defensive chips before they go up. And you're going to want this, and you're going to want that. You may not find that you have the room to spare. It's a really interesting balancing act. This isn't to say the game is like fully balanced out or anything like that, but there's a surprising amount of effort that went into it. For instance, even though there is Life Aura 3, which is a chip that just completely negates massive attacks, the chip has a huge megabyte cost, slow priority, meaning a number of enemy attacks will trigger before it, and very low HP. If that attack happens to be something like a big bomb or a sword that happens to get lucky and target that slot with its extra damage, or an elementally boosted tree bomb or similar like that, it could just obliterate the Life Aura 3 before it goes off in a fight. What starts off as a whole lot of just slugfesting between your opponents, you really start to have to pay attention to like, oh, my opponent has three curse shield threes on their second turn, they're guaranteed to draw one. If I do low damage chips in my last slot, I am literally just procking additional huge counterattacks whenever I attack my opponent, I need to actually adjust my folder to put breaking chips in those slots. Now, like I said, it isn't actually fully balanced, and you will find setups that, you know, tend to work pretty often without much adjustment. Literally, by the end of the game, I was running Woodman with a series of tree bombs in the early slots, chips which damage all of your opponent's chips, relatively low power, but get the boost from being Woodman, and have relatively high speed, so they go before most defensive chips. Couple that with a couple mindbenders at the end to lock my opponent into redrawing those chip slots that have been deleted, and you can see how that would get very powerful. But that doesn't mean it won every single fight. If my opponent opened with elemental auras, the tree bombs weren't quite strong enough to break them, and the elemental auras, unlike the life auras, actually have quite high priority. So I'd have to go and adjust my deck. And of course, even though I have the ability to set up grass stage and stuff in that folder, and heal up over time, I am a wood navvy. If my opponent is somebody like Fireman or Heatman, who is getting the fire damage bonus from being a fire navvy and is using fire chips, which I am weak to, I'm going to have to change my strategy. I'm going to have to grab a different navvy. It's all about that balance, that push and pull of mechanics that counter each other that just creates that depth. For many players, this is not going to change the fact that this is primarily an auto-battler. It is primarily a hands-off game where you are setting up a strategy and then kind of hoping it works out. And if it only, like, just barely doesn't work out, it's RNG, you just hit the retry button and try again until it works, and there isn't a penalty for that. This is really important because, frankly, the enemies do cheat in this game. They don't pay attention to traditional folder limits. But all the same, the point is, is with the relatively minimal amount of interaction here, because a well-timed barrier or Miramasa or terrain change or something in your LNR slots can make a surprisingly huge difference. But it is a low-interaction battler. And no matter how much I appreciate its complexity, 
I know there are people who heard you just sit back and let the battles play out and had decided it wasn't for them, and that's fair, but I think I actually really like it. Which is maybe one of the most controversial opinions I've had on this podcast to date. Anyway, let's head towards the end of covering this game by talking about the tournaments that you'll go through. At the E rank, the starting rank, it's pretty easy. It's designed to be doable with basically whoever, and especially the first tournament, is like so incredibly free. Like one of your fights is Number Man, who literally has one chip in his deck because he forgot it at all. The others demonstrate super basic strategies. The Guts tournament, which will probably end on you fighting Dex and Guts Man, is mostly just about can you handle your opponents throwing just raw power at you. And the other is focused more on a little bit of defensive chips and recovery chips, and will probably end with you fighting Roll or Ring. In fact, Roll's got so much healing in her deck that it really kind of teaches you, like, hey, damaging your opponent's chips so they stop healing is actually pretty valuable. In the D rank, it teaches us about elemental chips. Each of its four tournaments are focused around a different element. Each match also starts with the matching terrain out, and half the navvies you fight will match that element, including the bosses at the end like Fireman and Woodman. And they really do emphasize and demonstrate the way that elemental navvies end up doing a lot of damage in this game, because they give the bosses in these tournaments a fair amount of power. But the trick here, basically, is that once you do well enough to win some elemental chips from a given fight, even if you lose that tournament, you can use those, and especially the nav you could win at the end, to make the next element in the cycle easier, which is kind of a cool classic Mega Man-style design. The C-Rank is where you really begin to see like the variety of strategies emerge in this game. In one tournament, you're going to have to deal with poison panels that perpetually damage both players' navvies and their chips, so you're going to have to pay attention to the durability of your chips. One has everything using, essentially, holes as the starting terrain, meaning that sword and shockwave-based chips and stuff like that are just right out of the picture. And another one focuses on teaching you a bunch of the different guard and support type chips by having enemies who are going to take advantage of that, so you're going to need breaking chips or otherwise to be ready for such a strategy. In B rank, we get a second round of elemental tournaments, but they are definitely a little bit spicier here, and most importantly, unlike the first time we had elemental tournaments, the navvies here start compensating for their weaknesses. So you can't just jam your folder with, like, solely water element chips and expect to win in the fire elemental tournament, because you have Color Man, who will use the Aqua Balloon chip at the start of fights, which just freely absorbs water attacks and neutralizes them, and packs electric attacks, so if you only have a water-based navvy to fight with, is going to get punished for it. For A rank and S rank, the game stops having clear themes to its tournaments, and this is where it really steps it up. You're going to be fighting a variety of different elemental navvies, a variety of navvies with different strategies, and the fact that you have that 30-folder limit is going to start really mattering. You need to be prepared for basically anything to get thrown at you. 
As a fun thing, I was surprised to discover that one of the opponents you first run into in the A rank is actually Sean from Battle Network 2, who has apparently taken control of Freeze Man. I don't know if that's a statement that he was always supposed to have Freeze Man as his navy or not, but I'm just glad to see him here again. Anyway, at the end, you do fight a final boss based on which character you are playing as. I think for many of these, the final boss is actually Mega Man, except for, like, maybe Mega Man himself, who I believe fights Proto Man here. Mega Man's setup, for instance, is actually one of the more interesting ones in the game. He's got defensive chips in his early slots, and then aggressive chips later, but among those aggressive chips is the Custom Sword, a chip which continues to deal more and more damage based on the total number of rounds that have passed, meaning that you kind of have to go aggressive before he starts scaling out of control, but his defensive setup actually makes that hard to do. It's an interesting balance. Once you beat him, the game will roll the credits and play your character's ending, or at least the first ending, because that's not where the game ends. After that, you hit the X, Y, and Z ranks. Each of these is a single tournament of steadily increasing length, with, I think, the Z class being a 20-round tournament. If you drop out of the tournament at any point, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. Lots of navvies at this point are running some extremely powerful chips in their folder, or have, like, things that you're really going to have to pay attention to, whether it's covering for their own weaknesses, or just using, like, significant defensive chips that you will need to pack counters to. As some examples of significant opponents, at the end of the first tournament is Shadow Man. He's not too bad, except for the fact that one of his slot-in chips is the Muramasa, a chip which deals damage based on the amount of HP he is missing, meaning that at any point he can massively turn the fight around. And you need to make sure that you have a defensive chip basically constantly active that will intercept that, because you don't want to get just instantly slapped for 300-400 damage and deleted when you thought you had a winning match. Gateman caps off the second tournament, and while he has very little in the way of offense, he has a ton of defensive healing chips, including the powerful counterattack chip Guardian. If you don't match the right type of chips into his deck, he is probably going to beat you through a war of attrition. In the Z-Class, we find out the real purpose of the battle chip GP all along, which was that by finding the strongest of the strong, everybody was hoping to lure out and capture base. Naturally, when base shows up, he resists capture, defeats all the navvies, and whichever character you are playing as now has to face off against him as a final boss. Because he opens up the fight with life auras, you'd better have some chips that are able to defeat that one way or another, otherwise he's going to scale up his multi-hit buster to ridiculous amounts of damage, and that'll be it for you. But if you have the right type of chips, hint it's woodman with tree bombs, you've basically won. If you succeed, your prize is the ability to use base as your navi, an extra 60 megabytes for your folder's limit, which is a massive jump of extra power, and access to the last survival mode. Because the tournaments aren't the only challenge, there are survival modes which aren't really all that different except that they just unlock based on your tournament progress and aren't required to continue. They are generally notably harder than the actual tournaments available to you. The opponents you fight in them will come at you in a completely random order. The big thing here is that usually every 5 to 10 rounds within these survivals, which go 10, 20, 30, 40, and then 100 rounds long, you will unlock additional navvies that you wouldn't be able to get any other way. 
And yes, the final survival challenge is 100 rounds long and takes several hours to complete, even if you are winning most fights on your first try. Which I can't imagine was a great match for the GBA's limited battery life. Like, that would have sucked to have your battery light go on partway through, because there is no suspend and resume in this game. Plus, at the very end, you fight base GS as the game's hidden boss and most dangerous opponent. He's got more HP than just about anything you fight. When you get him, his chip limit is fairly mediocre, but of course he is loaded up on powerful chips because the enemies don't care about folder building limits. And of course he brings back life auras, but this time they're life aura 3s, so they're even harder to break. But you do get base GS's chip and the just bragging rights of it all if you've managed to make it all that way. And that triggers the true ending of Battle Chip Challenge on the GBA. But that's not the only version of this game. Also released in 2003 is the Wonderswan Color game, Rockman EXE N1 Battle. Yes, the Wonderswan Color. The Wonderswan got an upgraded version that was almost parallel to the GBA. We haven't seen the Wonderswan since Mega Man and Base Challenger from the future. The system is still basically the same, complete with the ability to like be turned into more of an arcade display, but this game does not use any of that. Notably, however, I don't know if it was just size limits or what, but this game seems like it was produced much earlier and prepared for a much earlier environment, even though it was released on the same day as the GBA version. And what I mean by that is that this version has things cut down a lot. It looks like Battle Network 1's menu layouts and design, as opposed to Battle Network 3's sleeker designs, and it doesn't have any Battle Network 3 content in it either, nor are the original characters Kai and Mary present at all. Also, the only story you can play through is Land's story. Otherwise, the game progresses largely in a similar format, but the devil's in the details about what has changed. If you were to see screenshots of their battle system, you'd think they're the same game, but subtle differences make all the difference in mechanics sometimes. One small loss is that the GBA version allows you to press B to just toggle on a fast-forward for the gameplay. On the Wonderswan Color version, you need to hold down that button, which is much more irritating and makes it much more difficult to type out notes while playing. But because of the fact that the game just has fewer animations for things, it does actually play faster than the GBA version. Speaking of cut content, though, it's not just Battle Network 3 content that was cut. There's a huge disparity in the number of navvies. Compared to the almost 50 of the GBA version, there's only about 20. There's a lot less battle chips. Compared to the 200 of the GBA version, there's only about 80 to 90 battle chips in this version of the game. Terrain chips? Completely gone. Defensive object chips? Oftentimes completely gone. Though, the ones that are still around tend to be obscenely powerful because of the way that the game completely reworked the resolution system for turns in this game. In the GBA version, your chips came out in the order they were selected on the decision tree, interweaved with your opponent's attacks. This meant you could know which chips were coming out first and second, and you could like respond to where your opponent was placing chips when you went back to re-edit your deck. Instead, in this game, chip speed is everything. Literally, Navi attacks and chips will come out once selected, 
entirely in the order of the speed of the attack itself, which, unlike the GBA version, is actually displayed because of how much more important the speed of a chip is. It's entirely possible for a fast-attacking Navi like Elacman or Quickman to have used all three of their chips and their default attack before any of your chips go off if they are slow. It also makes sequencing things like attack plus chips really unreliable because it can be interfered with in speed, and it also kind of completely breaks the way guard chips work, because many of them are now instantaneously activated as the first thing in a fight. The guard chip in particular, as completely inoffensive as it seemed at first, seemed almost completely unbeatable to me because it would block every single attack and counterattack until I realized that guard breaks the moment that it's hit with an elemental attack. But that means that if your opponent is using a folder that's guaranteed to be drawing guard every turn, based on the decision tree, you need to make sure that the first attacks that are coming out on your side are always elemental chips, which screws with your folder building. But also, because you don't have these defensive chips activating mid-turn, you have way less interaction, and things tend to devolve into way more of a slugfest. This is especially compounded with the fact that this version of the game does not have an L or R slot in system. Battles are 100% automatic with zero interaction. You won't be bailing yourself out of a tough situation with a well-timed curse shield or barrier in this game. Also, your folder capacity in this game is locked. It starts higher than you started with in the GBA version, but it never increases as you clear tournaments. But the size of your opponent's decks absolutely will be increasing, up to some absurdly cheating amounts. When you couple that with the way that the game tends to devolve more into a slugfest, it honestly starts feeling really bad sometimes. Like, Protoman is the final boss of Class A and is where my patience ran out, which is good because that's the end of the version. There is no XYZ tournament. He's guaranteed in his construction to pull out one standard sword, one elemental sword, so running any elemental navy is dangerous, never mind the damage that these chips do to your chips at complete random in deleting them, and all of his final slots are filled with life auras which very few chips outspeed and are able to delete safely, and they block everything short of extremely powerful chips like Elemental Blades, which there's barely any navvies in the game, which could use like more than three or four Elemental Blades before basically having to leave the rest of their folder completely empty. Since you don't want to use an Elemental Navi, your natural counter is probably going to be Mega Man, who has 100 less HP, a weaker buster attack, and has less evasion, which, by the way, Proto Man has really high evasion. Everything is stacked against you, and the most that I could do in that fight, because of the limited systems and interactivity, was just sort of do it over and over again until the game decided to be really lucky with deleting Proto Man's chips with my attacks, and then having him continually draw those deleted spots on the random tree. It felt like I could do so much less, because I could only do less. The counters that I needed were fewer and farther between because of how few chips there even were. Despite the fact that both of these systems were auto-battlers at their core, the Wonderswan color version of this game plays so much worse. I really enjoyed my time with the GBA version overall. Put a little asterisk in that, we'll come back to it. But I did not have fun with the Wonderswan color version. I'm glad I went through it because it was very interesting to feel that difference, but like, huh. When people hear of an automatic battle system, they assume something fairly shallow, and like, this is the shallow I think would potentially be a reasonable expectation. Still, after that, we did roll credits, and I was able to put N1 Battle aside as maybe one of the only people who's ever bothered to actually play that version. 
Before we wrap up, I do want to mention, this game has multiplayer, but in an unusual way. See, because so much of this game is kind of automated, and yeah, you can sort of just let a computer decide, like, oh, when the custom gauge is 80% full, tap L or R to activate a chip. Because that exists as a system, with no need for an opponent to manually control all their Navi's actions, they realize that, hey, we can let players play multiplayer without actually having to directly connect with each other. As a result, the game has passwords. It keeps a database where you can enter a player's name, and it admittedly somewhat long and unwieldy, 24-digit password in order to load their Navi into the game. Then, you can conduct tournaments where you play with 16, 32, 64, or even up to 128 total players. There's a bunch of weird default guests available to help prop up the list, but beyond the 16 round, you're going to have to go find codes. Now, the community around the game was small, but if you go to somewhere like GameFAQs, you can find old codes. I was technically playing a little bit this month against people who haven't picked up the game since it was released almost 20 years ago. Plus, while your matchups will be semi-random in these tournaments, you do win chips off of your opponents, and players had actually sat down and generated codes for navvies who only have that singular chip and were easy to defeat so that you can go enter a code for a navvy that has a chip that you want, and if you get matched up against them, beat them real easy and win that chip. Or if you really wanted to go wild, there is a website, I want to say it's somewhere on the Rockman EXE zone, that actually decompiled how the password system works, such that you can generate passwords online for the game. Just build out your folder right there, pass it off to a friend, and say, hey, try fighting this sometime. And while you only have to directly control and watch the battles of your own navvy, you can watch the battle of other navvies if you want, or the game is actually properly simulating them at super high speeds to figure out which ones are winning, and I think that's all kind of cool, especially because as a player you don't get an advantage in here. Whatever navvy you bring into this tournament mode is fixed. You don't get to edit the command deck. So, you know, those hard counters and stuff, it all matters. You need to figure out which decks beat the widest quantity of navvies. Plus, as a cool bonus, because the GBA version does contain every single chip and navvy in the Wonderswan Color version, you can actually use codes from the Wonderswan Color version in the GBA version, and it will add those navvies with those chips. They will get their butts absolutely whooped because of the higher program capacity and additional strategy of the GBA version and the fact that the GBA folders are just constructed completely differently. But the point is, is that for the purposes of this episode, I did in fact kick my own ass. Which leads kind of in a weird way to my final point, which is that in some ways this game kind of feels like a kick in the butt, just in the sense of being rude, and in other ways this game's kind of butt-kicking. Listen, not everybody's going to enjoy the whole automated battling thing, and I 100% get that. And if you think I'm crazy for suggesting that this game is good, okay. I think it's much better than I was expecting. It was much better than I remembered it, and it did take a little bit to get there. And there were times where that strategic depth Again, Woodman with a bunch of tree bombs and mindbenders, it turns out, demolishes 80% of the game. <laughs> Plus, I haven't really gone into the presentation of this game, but like I alluded to at the very beginning of this episode, this game is almost entirely made up of visual assets that already existed, which mostly results in navvies being really static and having barely any animation, and some of them animate absolutely, like, hilariously terribly. Like, I'm sorry, Shark Man, but the dude had, like, two frames of animation in the original Battle Network. 
one for his fin and one for his shocked sprite of getting hit. You know, when that has to be animated into him dodging things, tends to result in that whole animation looking absolutely ridiculous and just, you can tell visual quality was not the focus of this game. Plus, we'll get to it in a few moments, but the music of this game is extremely limited for the amount of time that it has. Plus, I don't think this game really suits the GBA at all. When you're playing a portable game, you want to be focused on the machine itself. This game actually better suits a modern format while you're like watching a YouTube video or chatting with friends on Discord or something, as something that is not taking your full attention but that you are still playing. Which, I know for many people, that's like, why would you play a game like that? And I get it, if that's not your kind of thing, you're not going to like this kind of game. But that is an environment that didn't exist when this game came out, where it can actually kind of succeed. And it is kind of nice just having this big, collaborative franchise celebration title in a way, because like even some of the generic filler NPCs, like you can run into generic navvies operated by Lan's mom, which is just fun. Or like if you want to see Miles step up and be a hero, you kind of get to do that. And it's nice to have her not just be a damsel in distress who then also shows up in the last moments of the game to destroy a random obstacle that didn't exist two seconds previous. And like I said, this system actually has a fair amount of depth and interaction to it, and I know it's crazy to say this, but I would love to see somebody tackle like a sequel to this, or like an expansion to this game. Is it the worst title in the Battle Network franchise? Before this, if you had asked me, I would have said, yeah, it almost certainly is. I'm actually not so sure anymore. It's just a very, very different title from the rest of the Battle Network franchise. But it's such a unique and unusual game, in a franchise already that is very unique fundamentally. I don't know, I kind of like it. Except the music. We gotta talk about the audio quality of this game. Like I said, there just is not much music in this game. The other Battle Network games have had this issue too, where like the loops are too short to sustain a full dungeon, but even they have a significantly greater variety of tracks over the course of the whole experience. Battle Chip Challenge spends a whole lot of time in combat and or menu screens, with a grand total of about four tracks you will be flopping between almost that entire time, minus like events or the final boss, and that does become a problem. And not only that, but the music is just kind of worse than the normal Battle Network games. The sound quality just isn't as good, the composition isn't as punchy, it's just, this is one of the weaker soundtracks in the franchise easily. Still, there are actually a couple tracks that are worth being aware of. The first that I'll highlight is going to keep up the Battle Network tradition of discussing the final boss themes. It's definitely not nearly as good as the other final boss tracks, but I also feel like very few people who have played this game have also played this game long enough to even hear this track. And, since we have two versions of the game, I'll start with the Wonderswan version and transition it to the full GBA version.
second, I'll highlight the track that is referred to in the soundtrack as Miles' theme, though I know it plays at least once in Mary's story, too. And this is just like, I don't know, I'm kind of a sucker for like really simplistic music box style tracks, and this is actually one of the like cuter and sweeter tracks in the series, and I don't usually highlight that kind of thing, so it stands out in this game and it'll stand out here. Finally, one track I will highlight, specific to the Wonderswan version for its rendition of it, is the staff roll theme, because this is just straight up, this could have been an old Mega Man stage theme and it would have fit great. It's actually a really cool track. Enjoy. And with all of that said, we come to the end of Battleship Challenge, and I throw it on the shelf. After sinking like 28 hours or something, possibly the most time I've spent in any Mega Man game to date, though a lot of it was not, you know, actively playing, but still. What am I playing next? That's something I haven't actually decided just yet. Hell, I'm finishing editing this on the 24th, and I still haven't made up my mind, so that's fun. We'll see when I decide which one and start booting it up. For the time being, if you've enjoyed what you've listened to, or just want to tell me that I'm absolutely insane for liking Battleship Challenge, feel free to shoot me an email at whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at whatamipodcast4, using the number 4. Stop by waipf.podbean.com for an RSS feed, or just use your podcast provider of choice. You know, follow it so you get more episodes every month. Or like the one episode every month, you know the deal. Thanks for listening, I've been Garlisle, and just remember, due to the password system, this GBA game technically has cross-platform, non-region locked multiplayer. I don't think there's a single other GBA game that could claim that, and that's weird.